Hello and welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast, where we explore the world of DEI and culture change. And importantly, helping you think about really actionable, tangible things that you can take back to your organization to help create a more diverse, inclusive and equitable workplace. Beyond that, we also like to think about how you can make a change in society and how as leaders, we can all have a bigger impact. I'm Kerry Boys. My background over the last 15 years has been in the world of strategy and leadership development, and also importantly, making effective change within organizations. And that's change that benefits, yes, people internally within that organization, but also drives business outcomes and then societal outcomes as well. Phil? Hi, uh, Phil Cross. I am co-founder at Leaders for Good with Kerry. My background is also in leadership development and strategy, uh, really looking at things through the lens of adult development theory and how we can use that to um, drive positive change in leaders, which impacts organizations, which, as Kerry alluded to before, has a flow-on effect to positive impact for society at large. What does 2023 have in store for the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. That's the topic of today's discussion. We dive into some of the major things that we think HR professionals, people and culture experts, and DEI practitioners should be thinking about right now. We get into some of the nuance. We have some constructive debate over um, some of the particulars of the uh, trends we've selected. And we leave you with some practical, tangible, tactical takeaways that you can think about implementing in your organization right now. A fun and wide-ranging discussion as always, and we hope you get a lot of value from this conversation. So without further ado, we bring you the DEI trends for 2023. Now, uh, before we get into the specific trends, I should note that we do have a written version of this that we wrote up as a, as a post that's available on our website, and you'll be able to access that through a link in the show notes. Kerry? So there's four trends that we're going to cover today. These are the trends that we see as the top four trends that are going to impact DEI through 2023 and beyond. So the first trend is about acceleration employee activism. The next is ERGs and DEI committees and how we might rethink our approach to those. The third is around formalization of flexible working. And then the fourth is all around AI and bias. So we're going to start with the first one, logically, which is about the acceleration we're seeing in employee activism. And the most recent stat we have seen around employee activism is that there's been a 40% increase in employees asking their organizations to take a stance on a wide range of topics. So yes, that includes gender equity, racial justice, reproductive health, and many, many more. And what we're also seeing is a real split in terms of how organizations react to these challenges. So we react to employees asking them to take a stance on often things that are outside of their organization. So on one side, we've got organizations such as Coinbase, 37signals, and they're taking quite strict approaches. So they're saying they do not want employees to be discussing any of this within, within the workplace, that this isn't content that's relevant for workplace discussions. And then on the other side, we've seen many organizations, so Ben & Jerry's, Future Super, many others that are really leaning into hearing what their employees say. So, for example, Future Super supporting their employees to go on the marches for Invasion Day in Australia. And they're really encouraging those discussions and they're using the power of their business to drive societal change. So we're seeing a polarization in terms of how, how organizations are reacting to employee activism. 
Phil, what are your what are your thoughts? I have many, and I'll <laughs> I'll try and keep this short. This is a fascinating this is a fascinating topic, and as with many areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, there's no one right answer, and there's no one right way of thinking about this. And you can you can really look at this from from both sides of the equations. For instance, the organisations that choose to take a stricter approach to um, putting guardrails around what can and can't be discussed in the workplace, you can see that perspective, right? You've got limited resources. Organisations, even with the best of intentions, would struggle to have a stance or an opinion on every single social and societal issue. So how do they prioritise? How do they decide what's relevant for them and, and their people? Um, and also going down to the individual level, if you're creating a culture where it's expected or, or um, there are there is a lot of dialogue about societal issues, there may be individuals who who work there that don't feel comfortable engaging in that dialogue. And sometimes we, we've seen in, in organisations um, abstaining from getting involved in in dialogue can can have negative consequences for people. So so that's kind of one side of the equation. On the other, completely shutting down any discussion around things that people care about uh, beyond the you know beyond the immediate working environment is a really potentially i think dangerous thing for organizations to do um for multiple reasons a we're um we're uh, not potentially fully acknowledging and leaning into the impact it's having on individuals both again within the business and and in society at large and we're not allowing for any forum for a business to know how their employees' preferences, what they care about, what they're thinking about is shifting over time. If you're just not listening, you're not prepared to hear that in the workplace. Um, as events unfold, as, as um, you know, discussions in the culture unravel, um, you're unaware you know you're not gathering the data you're not gathering the insights and you're you're not getting the perspectives of your people and i think that can lead to potentially very dangerous blind spots for businesses so those are the those are the immediate things that come to mind if i'm if i'm kind of speaking to both sides of that equation and i guess the additional risk to build there is and we saw this with coinbase is we know that a lot of employees are really passionate about these areas to the extent that they will actually leave organizations so when coinbase mm. Mm. laid down the law and said, we will not allow this conversation in the workplace. They lost a huge portion of their employees. And in a market where talent is mm. so hard to get and so challenging, that's a really, really significant risk for organizations. And, and I think organizations such as Coinbase and and um, and 37 Signals as well expected and and offered offered a, a fairly generous off ramp for those people so again they were to you know from what I from what I read and what I understand about this they were they were expecting and prepared for that scenario and they were really being intentional about the the culture they wanted to create uh, and and again it's not a culture we would necessarily you know as DEI practitioners advise I, th I think we'd lean on the side of having more open dialogue around around cultural and societal issues but you can appreciate the you can appreciate the path they take as a, as a mission focused organization uh, i suppose playing devil's advocate and, and i don't know what uh, you know if you've got any kind of immediate thoughts on this kerry if if you if you were to be you know as we are <laughs> talking to organizations about maybe where they should be placing their focus and placing their attention how do organizations go about triaging because having a having a view and having a stance on on everything that happens in the world is i think difficult as i said before for a lot of organizations so so how do how do businesses go about prioritizing and triaging 
And I think that's an incredibly hard question. And for me, the answer comes back down to what your purpose is as an organization and what your values are and and building it around that. So as you said, with Coinbase, it's interesting for me that they call it a mission because the word mission to me means something mm. very, very different and it's a broader sort of societal mission. Um, mm. But thinking about as an organization, yeah, what you what you do value and what your purpose is, and hopefully that's a purpose beyond profit, as you know, we we are always shouting for that. And then trying to link through to to those values in terms of thinking about where you focus. One of the key outtakes we had in our blog around this and and for leaders is regardless of where you sit on that spectrum, whether you are going to embrace employees and their perspective on sort of broader societal issues or whether you don't want that in your workplace, as Phil said, cultural cultural decisions. But regardless of that, it's being really clear and being really specific and having guidelines around it. So if we're an organization that isn't going to get involved, we need to be clear on that from the start so we don't have unfair expectations. Whereas if we are going to lean in, how do we put structures around it to be clear exactly as you just said, Bill, to what we lean into? And how? And that's going to evolve over time, of course, but what's the processes around it? How do we start to put some clear, consistent approaches in so that it's not every single time our employees ask for something, we're starting from square one? What, what's the structured process to be able to think about it? I'm sure you've got thoughts as well. I do. And one clear example just springs to mind and i think it illustrates this point nicely around organizations and uh, organizations the potential danger for organizations shutting down any any discussion on this for for their uh, for their people um, and that was the overturning of roe versus wade in the us and the impact on the reproductive health for for many many people that that resulted from that so what we saw was many organizations coming out with explicit policies in support of their employees. For instance, they would fund out-of-state travel for people who needed to have an abortion to go to a, to go to a different state and, 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 and have that done. If an organization was completely blind to the discussions around this, then we would see a, a huge and very impactful and, and potentially harmful blind spot um, occurring with, with the discussions that are going on internal and the policies um, within that organization. So regardless of regardless of the you know the the, the stance that an, an organization takes with its employees that we're guard railing these topics, I think they need to happen at Certain so in some kind of forum at some kind of level in the organisation. I don't. I don't think you can be blind to what's happening out there in the rest of the world. You, uh, an organisation is not an island that's dis, that's disconnected from what's going on in the culture. I think is the takeaway there. And I think the build on that, well, just to really clearly link it back to diversity, equity, and inclusion, is we talk about valuing our employees' voice. So if our employees care really strongly about these societal issues, they don't see that as separate to their day-to-day work. They don't have this work persona that comes into the office um, and that strips away any any difference that they have when they're in that environment. We want to embrace, we want to lean into that. And part of that is some issues that are making a huge, huge impact on them as individuals. Oh, just one one thing that kind of leads on to our leads on to our next topic about employee resource groups and and providing forums for employees that are um, you know members of members of certain communities or, or interested in, in in certain topics, um, providing you know 
providing a forum for them to uh, for them to congregate, even if it's not inside of you know official office hours, but but saying but you know putting up the uh, putting up the bat signal so to speak and saying like, hey, anybody who is interested in discussing you know the impact of the war in Ukraine, for instance, on on our business and our culture, um, we're we're setting up this forum. So I, I think I think allowing people to um, uh, you know to self-select into certain discussions is also is also something organisations might want to consider. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what I might just pull us back through to now is what the specific things you can consider, what things you can do within your organization to think about how you, I guess, embrace employee activism for want of a better term. So the first thing is to be thinking about whether you have a really clear perspective or policy on employee activism. So we talked about that spectrum. Where do you sit and how are you going to address it? And a big part of that we talked to earlier is about how that links to your organizational purpose, your organizational values. And then the second part of this is once we understand that, if we've got a bit of a process around it, once we're empowering our people to have those conversations, if that's the route we decide to go down, how are we supporting our leaders in this? Because leaders suddenly have a whole new expectation on them around how they have these challenging conversations. When an employee is raising these concerns or has a really strong perspective, how do leaders react in the right way? So we need to ensure that they've got the support as well to be able to, to be able to manage the the final one i would uh, the final one i would just throw into the mix there which is worth worthy of consideration is making sure that you're walking the talk when it comes to when it comes to what you espouse as an organization i always come back to this uh i always come back to this example because it's 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 slightly funny, if not a bit depressing. But the um, the bot that posted the the uh, gender pay gap in organisations that were um, <laughs> that were tweeting about International Women's Day. So International Women's Day is you know obviously fast fast approaching, and uh, organisations are you know very vocal in their in their highlighting the you know the the phenomenal women in their organisations and supporting women's rights. And then, you know, you find out that the reality is that there's a significant gender pay gap in the organization. So I would say that if, you're, if your business is going to take a stance uh, on, on a certain topic, that you're actually taking steps in, in policy, procedure, training, mindset, behaviors to, to, to walk your talk. Because if, if not, I think that can be, you know, that's obviously coming across as very disingenuous to your people, to your customers, to your partners, suppliers, et cetera. If you like what you've heard so far in the podcast and are looking for new ways to bring diversity, equity and inclusion to life in your organisation, why not reach out for a chat? At Leaders for Good, we offer a range of solutions from diversity, equity, inclusion strategy sprints through to inclusive leadership workshops to DEI training for your whole organisation. So if that sounds good, drop us an email at hello at leadersforgood.org. Okay, should we move on to topic number two? So the second thing on our trends list that we see uh, we see a big shift in is um, employee resource groups, so ERGs and DEI committees within organizations. Now, we're increasingly hearing from uh, businesses that we've begun to work with and our, um, our you know, kind of friends out there in, in, in corporate land that that there's a um, a dissatisfaction with how much progress, how much impact, with the with the with the uh, with the with the work that these groups have been able to to do within organisations. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. So, one of the key drivers here is unrealistic expectations. Often, the, these groups are 
held responsible for leading and driving um, and implementing a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion um, uh, initiatives within an organization. And despite being passionate, well-intentioned people, they may not have the resources, they may not have the specific subject matter expertise, they may not have the support, they may not have the time in order to effectively do that. Um, often people in these groups are doing it over and above their um, their day-to-day jobs. So um, yeah, DEI is an incredibly complex area and leaving it to groups of well-intentioned, self-selecting people um, the result is that that things aren't moving at the pace um, that organisations would like, and, and strategies falter, and uh, the the business case starts to fall apart. So we see all the promises that are made, all all the potential of creating a more diversity, diverse, equitable, and inclusive organisation being left on the table, and we're just not seeing the the, the type of change and the type of results that, um, that 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 could be happening. Kerry, do you have any any builds or thoughts on that? I guess just that what we're seeing so often is frustration on all levels around it. So we've got our business leaders or our DEI leads that are really frustrated that these groups aren't making progress. And then we've got the people in the groups themselves that are really passionate, but they're really frustrated because they're not able to make change. They haven't got the time. They don't feel like they're being valued and rewarded for the work that they're doing. So there's this sort of negativity on both sides around something that comes from such a positive place and there is so much belief and passion on. So it's it's a real, I guess it feels like a real shame when we walk into organizations and see that. And what we work with them on is, as Phil mentioned earlier, expectations, number one, but also then how do we support those groups to be able to deliver? And they do need support. Absolutely. So we've worked with a large APAC organization recently to run a whole load of training for those groups in terms of how you make effective change. These groups aren't experts in change. They're not experts in DEI and and they shouldn't be. Uh, We shouldn't expect them to be. But if we can support them on how they work together, how we can give them additional um, factors that add value to them. So one of the things we did in that organization that was so simple, but was the chief people officer sending them all an email to say how much they valued their contribution. And the next session I was in with them, every single one of those ERG leads was singing about how much of a difference that made. So that was a small thing. The other thing we are seeing with organizations, especially some of the big tech organizations, is they're starting to pay their ERG leads, which for me is very interesting Mm. as an area. So what that does say is, yes, we really value your contribution. And it says it's something that's over and above day-to-day work. But it also separates it slightly for me and makes it sit separately to the organization. I don't know how you feel about it, Phil. It's always sat slightly uncomfortably with me. I, I can I can see both sides of the equation. I think actual time needs to be carved out for people to do this work if it's actual work that's that's being done. So I, I think again, it comes back to the role of the ERG. Is is it a place for people who identifies uh, with a particular group to to connect, to discuss, um, um, you know, to to build community? That's slightly different from a group that's expected to drive complex initiatives. Um, another thing, so so I think I think. In the latter instance, I think carving out time and resources in the form of money, in the form of 10% of your role is is doing this, I, th- I think is absolutely warranted. I think what's interesting for me is the difference between, so if we're going to do it effectively, it has to be built into your existing role. So say it's 20% of your mm. existing role or whatever that, that amount is, and it builds into your existing KPIs and it's within your existing systems and structures. So it becomes very interesting to me when you then give additional funds because that's suggesting 
it is separate and it is additional time outside of your day-to-day workload. So I don't, I'm not mm. sure, maybe you can help me. Why does that feel uncomfortable to me? I'm not even sure why it does. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Because, I mean, if you're, if you're, if your job is a, a you know, if you're mm. a lead developer, if, if you're a software engineer, if you're a, if you're a construction worker, then really beyond you know beyond role modeling inclusive behaviors and and kind of you know um uh, driving driving change that way nothing about what you're actually doing uh, that that's, that's a bit of an oversimplification again we can bring things like inclusive design into our roles but but the specific remit of your job is not is not driving forward de- organizational dei so i think it's it would be very different if you're um you know in the people and culture or hr team i think i think that's where the lines start to blur i I, th- I think where you're you're hired to do something like like software engineering for instance i think then being very deliberate and very explicit about that um and also making sure that it doesn't hamper your um your career uh, your career progression because you might have a for instance if you have a manager you're giving 20% of your time um, and and that's funded and that's agreed, but you're giving 20% of your time to this DEI initiative. O- on paper, you look, you look, you know, all the, all the things being equal, you look 20% less productive than, than another <laughs> software engineer in the team. So making sure that we're hedging against that is really important. Um, another thing I think is, is, is notable about the funding um, and the carving out time and the, the, it, sh- it shouldn't necessarily be above and beyond the, uh, the day to day for, for a lot of people is the fact that especially employee resource groups are, are populated by people from um, historically marginalised um, groups. So, so again, you're you're taking a group that already, arguably, is um, disadvantaged in certain ways systemically in the workplace, and then they have more work to do <laughs> in terms of in terms of driving the change. Uh, and, and for me, that that's a really compelling case for well, two things: a making sure that there are um, allies in the group doing the work and helping drive the change, but also also funding it in some capacity. Yeah, and I guess if it is going to be over and above your existing workload, then it should be funding. It does make sense. Um, any further points on that one, Kerry? No, I just think that it's such an important area and we definitely see the value of, I mean, I hate the term ERGs, um, employee resource mm. in general sounds horrible. We, we talk, talk to lots of organizations about employee community groups or network groups or more that type of terminology, but being really clear around what their, what their purpose is. And so often they are used to drive action. And increasingly, as we're working mm. with organizations where we're seeing real value is when they become more around community. Um, when they're about supporting mm. those underrepresented groups within the organization um, and they can advocate for change, yes, but especially in larger organizations, having specific DEI roles that are, are there to, to do the action and have the specialist skill set to be able to do that. Uh, and just maybe one final note on DEI committees, because th- those those often sit separately from an employee employee resource group if that's if that's centered around a particular um, aspect of aspect of diversity. Um uh, separate from a, a DEI committee, which generally is more looking at the the overall strategy and the overall approach and driving driving those initiatives forward. Again, they're mi- they're usually made up of an eclectic group of people who've put their hands up to drive this, but but not necessarily with the subject matter expertise to move things forward in in the way that they might. So, what we've 
what we've advised a, a number of organizations to do on this front, and, and this isn't right for all, but but this has definitely worked for some, is move away from this idea of DEI committees, is having subject matter experts drive the drive the, the change that needs to be driven. So for instance, um, if there's a, a rollout of inclusive leadership or, or you know DEI foundations training in an organization, that the people in charge of the people um, tasked with making that happen are learning and development professionals, are people in culture, people in culture professionals. The, the role of the, the DEI committee then shifts to being more DEI champions. So they're the people advocating, they're removing roadblocks, they're having conversations in different parts of the organizations, uh, they're being vocal about their support. Um, for for this work, so and they're ideating as well. They're they're bringing in um, a diversity of perspectives. So if we're thinking about the rollout of a again a learning and development program, they're involved at the at the you know more of a kind of ideation phase, more of an input phase. So we're getting that diversity of perspective, but we're not necessarily relying on them to do the work. So just food for thought there in terms of how organisations are thinking about structuring things. And I guess just one final point is. Of course, we believe that there should be as much resource as possible um, in this space. And we do understand that for some organizations, that's just not feasible. And especially smaller organizations, this work does have to fall to existing people within the organization where we don't have the teams to be able to do it. So I think there's a, there's a realism element that, of course, we can overlay with everything that we've just said. Well, that brings us nicely to the uh, to the things to think about. Which do you have clear and real ex- realistic expectations about your your ERGs and your your DEI committees? So, if in the you know in the example Kerry just mentioned, you are relying on on people in the organization with you know who haven't got a lot of discretionary time and they haven't necessarily got the subject matter expertise, then expecting mountains to move in very short spaces of time is is going to set you up for disappointment so um i think in those instances just acknowledging that it might take it might take more time um than 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 you were uh, initially hoping for so being clear being realistic um how are you measuring effectiveness of these groups as well? So, from from number of uh, from a number of different dimensions, but we're we're big on measuring the impact and effectiveness of of, of work in in the DEI space. It helps create compelling cases for for doing more, and and it shows us what's working and what's not. So, so measuring and gathering data is absolutely essential. So, um, how are we doing that? Uh, at the level of the group um, driving this uh, and especially noticing potentially disparities in the effectiveness of different ERGs as well and how they can work together. So, um, uh, Kerry, I'll, uh, you can obviously jump in and add some add some color here, but but Kerry's been leading an initiative with one of our one of our large clients over in Southeast Asia, um, bringing together representation or leaders of different employee resource groups to share knowledge, to share best practice, uh, best practice. Um, and to try and create a more level playing field because um, we've seen it time and time again as well. You have a couple of employee resource groups in an organization that might be very well very well staffed, very well funded and, and, and driving a lot of change and others that are struggling. So so how do we, how do we level that playing field? I might just jump in because there's another couple of elements mm. that actually I do think are really important in that. And yes, it's about best practice and, and sharing and leveling a playing field, but it's also about how we make it really clear for everyone else internally. So one of the challenges that we see with the employee resource first approach, employee resource group first approach or diversity first approach is the organization, say we in that organization we were just referring to, we had five groups. Each of those groups is sending a different message out into the organization in a different way at different times and different formats. 
So it can become incredibly complex and confusing. So as well as sharing best practice, one of the things we were working on in that program was what are the synergies we can create and how can we work better together? So a very small example, but every single one of those groups was reviewing the policies individually and sending five different messages to the HR teams about things that they needed to be changed within policies. Mm-hmm. Actually, now we've formed a working group with one member from each ERG around policies. So a small thing makes working together much more simple, makes it much more effective and means we're having a much more holistic approach to how we're communicating. Another example is rather than the five different messages that were going out to the broader business from the ERGs, there's now an ERG platform where all the messages are going out from one place in a consistent manner so that people can engage in the way that they want to. And and even going beyond that, and, and this speaks to our kind of, um, you know, our approach to diversity, equity and inclusion in general, which is 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 making sure that there is common language that there's a that there's a shared approach even just using using the same language and terminology around things like bias um and and you know other other kind of overlap things which overlap and impact you know virtually all um employee resource groups how are they how are they talking with the with a shared language so as to not cause cognitive overload and just just confuse um confuse the organization so um yeah, uh, and the final point is just um, be again being intentional and clear about the support uh, and resources you're providing these committees and groups as well. So, um, so they know the funding, they know the time, they know the support they're working with, uh, and again, that loops back to our first point, which is about being real- realistic about expectations. Okay, the next trend, which gets a lot of talk and a lot of chatter, is around formalization of flexible working. So. Flexible working, we think of in the broadest possible way. So that's the time in the office, it's working from home, it's number of days you work, it's things like job sharing, it's the hours you work. And I think over the last couple of years, every single organization has grappled with this and trying to understand the benefits and the risks and we're increasingly seeing people or organizations encouraging people back to the office. We're seeing other organizations going fully remote, fully flexible. And what's interesting from to us, I guess, from a DEI perspective on this is when we think about how this can benefit or disadvantage people from traditionally underrepresented or vulnerable groups. So for example, if we're giving flexibility, there's a really strong additional benefit and we start to drive equity around things like people with disabilities that may, for example, struggle to get into the office or may need to have shorter working days. Or people with caring responsibilities. So for a number of people, one of the biggest benefits for them during COVID and working from home was being able to pick up children or to care for elderly relatives, for example. So what we're seeing is this flexible working can really help with that leveling, leveling the playing field. Phil? Lots of, again, lots of different directions we could we could take this. Um and it it's not all rosy of course so um the the expectation that your um or, or the lack of an office or the lack of uh, you know the centralized place to be is not always the right solution for everyone for instance people who don't have a home environment that's conducive to getting work done so um i, I, and I think that's why we we sort of talk about flexibility and we talk about kind of optionality here and, and be, people being able to find the approach that works for them um and and similar to the first point as well it's 
organizations being clear about the culture they want to build, being clear about the expectations of their uh, expectations on their people, and allowing people to opt in or opt opt out accordingly. So um, I, I think they've come to more of a middle ground now. But um, a you know Apple were fairly bullish on hey we're all we're all going to get back to we're all going to get back to our beautiful round spaceship in Cupertino at some point because we believe that people being together in a physical environment drives collaboration and innovation and 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 all of those all of those good things and they're not necessarily wrong either you know that that's a that's a perspective so i, I think again it comes back to it comes back to being clear about what your what your policies and and what your stance on this as an organization is i think what frustrates individuals what causes uncertainty which we know is uh, is one of the um, you know is 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 a potential um you know red flag a potential danger trigger for uh, for individuals that we we as human beings don't tend to like a high degree of uncertainty is when organizations keep flip-flopping it's one one minute we're remote and then there's a you know the, the ceo changes their mind and and there's a mandate that we all come back to the office that's very disruptive and and that causes uh, potentially a lot of anxiety and we've had lots of conversations with leaders about this over the last couple of years and i think what you just mentioned there about culture is really important because so often leaders have said to us, well, what's our policy on flexible working? Like what mandates are we going to put in place? And for me, that's the wrong way to think about it. Like this is the potential mm. to define your culture. And this can be a big, sexy thing to introduce to your organization, whatever route you go down. So if we think of it in that way, we think about getting feedback from our organization and what they truly want. And then when we do launch whatever our approach is, we're really clear on the why. So, so often these like organizational mandates around we must be in the office, they're missing the part that Phil just mentioned around collaboration and the fact that we get to be together and all the really positive elements on it. So I think, yeah, flipping this in its head and seeing this as a culture driver and something that is exciting in whatever form it might be, is a really nice reframe. And we've worked with a few organizations to do that recently, which has been quite fun. I think the point you made earlier, and I just want to, I just want to kind of double click on it again from a from a diversity and from an equity and inclusion perspective, is that the acknowledgement that different policies affect different groups of people differently. Um, so, for instance, we worked with a working with an organisation that, um, and again, we're, we're casting our mind back a year and a half, couple of couple of years ago when we were sort of in in more uncertain uncertain COVID driven times. And there was a, a push for people to come back into back into the office, and there was a uh, an all hands town hall, and one of the one of the pieces of pushback or one of the questions that came from uh, you know came from a uh, came from a, a Slido poll was, well, <clears throat> coming back into the office is all well and good for you as senior management. You all have you know you all have car parking spots um in 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 the basement you can all you can all drive into work in a in a kind of safe insulated environment i have to get the bus for an hour every day um uh to to get into work and i'm you know i'm i'm really concerned about this i'm really concerned about this virus um, as as a lot of people were and are so um that I think is, uh, and again, just doing the work to 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 consider who's going to be impacted in what ways and why, and and for the people who are potentially negatively impacted, what could you put in place that um, potentially mitigates that? So carers, people with disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. So um, even even if you're even if you are taking a, a slightly less flexible approach to working, doesn't mean that you have to leave. Um, uh, it doesn't mean you have to disadvantage uh, certain certain individuals and groups. 
Okay, so let's take that on then to give some clear things to think about. So the first one is thinking about flexible working more from a cultural perspective and and how does it align from your values and using that as the starting point for thinking about what your approach to flexible working is. Only once we've done that and we're communicating around that, have we got a really clear policy on it. So let's make this obvious for people. Let's set the expectations and let's make sure they know the channels they need to go through if they want to ask questions and if they think there's additional things that will help support them. Phil's point a moment ago, how clear are you on who in your organization is most impacted? So whether that's positively or negatively and making sure that sort of existing privilege and power dynamics aren't just being reinforced. And then finally, what systems and processes are in place to make sure that people that do choose to work remotely or flexibly aren't being disadvantaged by that? So we hear often that people that aren't in a physical meeting, for example, can be excluded and how are we making sure that we're running meetings inclusively so that everyone's got a chance to contribute, everyone's got the opportunity to add value and have their voices heard. Great. Uh, moving on to our final trend, and uh, <laughs> this may this last one may seem a little bandwagon jumpy, but it's I promise you it's not. Where th- this is, a, you know, we're paying attention to what's happening out there in the marketplace in terms of investment, um, in terms of uh, in terms of people's attention and time. But it's the conversation around artificial intelligence and the the tools that are becoming more democratized and available to people, uh, the potential impact on different groups, and uh, the potential impact of buying bias within um, AI-driven systems and algorithms. So um, unless you have been living under a rock recently, you would have heard the you would have heard the names like uh, OpenAI and ChatGBT. Um, you would have seen that recently Microsoft um, uh, announced the, um, the ways in which the ChatGBT and, and OpenAI um, uh, software is being integrated with its Bing search engine. So a kind of reinvigoration of the Bing search engine um, with a lot more uh, with a lot more um, AI features added, uh, Microsoft putting billions of dollars of investment in, um, and of course in, uh, AI is nothing new. You know, Google, Microsoft, um, Apple have all been investing, and, and other other tech companies have all been investing in heavily in this area for many many years. But we've seen an explosion of interest in this area in the public consciousness recently um, because of the democratization of certain tools like Midjourney and, and ChatGPT. So. What are the implications for this? Why are we why are we talking about this? Well, um, there's a few things that organisations m- may want to start considering uh, here. Now, the implications of this might not be might not uh, might not come to fruition. Some of this might not come to fruition immediately, but starting to think about and starting to talk about this is really really important. So, the the risk of certain roles and certain uh, certain types of work being um, uh, going away basically from a from a human perspective and being given to AI is very very real. So I think first of all, organisations considering who is impacted by that. So looking at your looking at your business, looking at your business model, looking at the areas in which um, automation and, and AI is likely to play a more significant role, uh, and what are the implications for people in your organisation of that. I think is a really really important one. Also, um, also considering if you are to introduce some AI tools into your organization, how how um, much vetting are you doing of those tools for things like algorithmic bias? So there are um, a few people have 
run some kind of lightweight studies on this around things like ChatGPT uh, and have uncovered some pretty significant um, uh, things like gender bias, um, for instance, in the tool. So if you ask ChatGPT to spit you out a story involving a CEO, uh, it, is most, it is most often a man. Um, if you ask ChatGPT to, to um, tell you something involving a nurse, um, it will talk about that individual um, as a woman uh, most often because this tool is 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 not smart. It is just based on it is trained on data, um, massive data sets out there on the internet, which are, contain a lot of the the, the huge types of human bias that we're um, that we're all used to and talk about. So, if you are as an organization thinking about letting these tools loose and, and letting people get their hands on them, um, really considering the potential types of bias that you're uh, potentially letting into your uh, to your work streams. Kerry, I'll talk for a while. Any any thoughts on that? I think the area that we often talk about the risks associated with AI and the sort of negativity around it, and there's definitely all of that's real and we need to consider it. I think where I get excited is about the opportunities. And Phil, you shared that example mm. probably a couple of months ago now, but where some art- uh, someone had built an artificial intelligence tool for a builder who struggled with dyslexia. And he was really struggling to talk in a professional manner to his clients. And he was losing lots of clients because he just couldn't get his words right in terms of his invoicing and his communication back and forth on things like text. And someone built him a really simple tool where he could type in his words and the AI would convert it into professional business language. Now, that is a perfect example of something that is driving equity. It's putting people on the same playing field and using artificial intelligence in that way. So I'm definitely concerned about the risks, but I'm also quite excited about how we can use it to try and balance out some of these issues that exist in in organizations and society as a whole. I, I think you're absolutely right, and yeah, I probably I probably did come across as curmudgeonly and, and possibly a bit overly pessimistic when I was uh, when I oh, which is yeah, which is which is my bias and my preference. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. The, uh, the the implications for the implications for AI being a uh, being a co-pilot, being in a being a you know a true assistant for people. Um, I, I I heard um, Sachin Nadella, um, Microsoft CEO, being interviewed in um, just in relation to the uh, the announcement Microsoft made the other day um, and he uh, <laughs> he said something which very much resonated with me he was like well we you know we've been using AI to, to to help us for years you know if you think of something as simple as he said if not for the squiggly red line that appeared under misspelled words in in Microsoft Word I'd be all but un- unemployable um, which definitely applies to <laughs> definitely applies to me as well and it was it was heartening to hear Sachin Adela <laughs> say the uh, say the, say the same thing so you know, we've been from the days of from the days of uh, from the days of Clippy in in Microsoft Office. You remember Clippy, the little little paperclip assistant. We've you know we we've been we've been letting these tools kind of guide us and assist us. Um, and I think I think the democratization of them is interesting mm-hmm. too as well. It's it's the you know the. I think it, it being um, it being accessible to more people, uh, just in the way that you know technology all, all filters down. You know the, the the power we have in our in our hands in terms of smartphones would have been unthinkable. Um, you know, fifteen twenty years ago, and now anybody with you know even modest means has got a supercomputer in their pocket, and and that's a wonderful thing. So um, I, I think I think looking at that from that perspective is is helpful too. Some considerations, some thing to some things to think about. Um, 
really what opportunities and challenges does AI create for your people in your organization? Um, does it pose an existential risk to your organization as well? I think is an interesting one. <laughs> you know, are you going to have to pivot as a business um, in order to um, protect the uh, the livelihood and the uh, the positive impact on all your stakeholders? Um, are you clear on the jobs? that are at risk um, most from automation and AI? Uh, and how are you supporting people who uh, whose careers may have to pivot in the next few years to make transitions? I think that's, a, that's an important consideration as well. Um, and are you vetting suppliers using, um, using technology or introducing technology into your, into your organization? Uh, how, how, what um, guardrails have they put around uh, algorithmic bias? Um, you can listen to one of our previous, recent previous episodes uh, with Reham Sati um, from MeVitae, an organisation that tries to uh, use AI to debias CVs um, in the in the hiring process. Um, and they've you, you can hear her speak to this, but they've taken um, great lengths to make sure or, or you know mitigate any any potential um, algorithmic bias that's creeping into creeping into their system. So that's worth worth a listen as well, and we'll pop that in the show notes. It's such an interesting area and one I know nowhere near enough about, but constantly trying to trying to keep up with and we will keep sharing our thoughts as we as we move through so mm-hmm. we were going to ask ourselves a question here which was which of these we think is the most important before we do that i'd like to add one extra so when we shared mm. this on linkedin um someone shared it again and they said what about inclusive leadership as a trend and i think that's a really mm. important one that we don't explicitly have here but we absolutely believe in which is that inclusive leadership is fundamental for leaders and really actually inclusive leadership we see is just great leadership but we're definitely seeing organizations embracing this we're doing more and more work in this space so i thought it's worth a mention phil i just wonder whether there's anything Mm. else you want to add it's a it's a great question, and I, I think it's worth I think it's worth highlighting and just reiterating. Uh, hope, hopefully, this is obvious that just because we've mentioned these four things, well, now five with in- inclusive leadership, doesn't mean that those are the only things an organisation should focus on. Absolutely not. There there are still you know all of the all of the fundamentals of the diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of your systems, processes, policy, mindsets, behaviours um, that organisations should be should be should be absolutely focusing on. Um, uh, in terms of in terms of the inclusive leadership accelerating as a trend, I, I, I'm, I think we're definitely seeing more uh, more openness to that and more uh, more appetite for it as well. Um, and I think we're seeing m- uh, uh, an acceleration in the sophistication of of um, programs and workshops that organisations are demanding in this area. So we saw uh, we saw a global uptick in organisations looking for uh, looking for DEI programs and DEI work uh, after the murder of George Floyd. Um, you can you can go in Google Trends and, and check this for yourself. The, the search terms for organisational DEI and unconscious bias just just upticked and, and kind of stayed high after that. Uh, which is which is interesting, um, but I think what we're seeing is organisations who've traditionally been um, engaging in programmes and workshops that may have been kind of questionable in how effective they are and and and, and how much change they drive in in organisations are actually looking and demanding more from their suppliers and partners. Certainly, the solutions we're putting forward and talking to talking to our clients about and, and potential clients about are you know on par with you know any world class leadership development program um out there so uh, i think i think a uh, an uptick in the sophistication of dei programs that's being demanded from organizations would be would be one i'd i'd build on there 
And I think with the leadership part, what we're hearing from leaders themselves as well as broader organizations is just the expectations in this area is so high. And what we're seeing is often people aren't able to contribute and do their best because of fear. So a lot of very senior leaders in organizations that want to drive, they want to help, they want to support, but they just are so worried about saying the wrong thing and don't have a structure to be able to approach approach it. So that's why I think inclusive leadership work is so important because we're equipping the people, often the most powerful people in the organizations to be able to support and drive this work. So sorry, I took a slight side tangent, but I thought it's, it was worthwhile. Okay, so then if we're going to ask ourselves that question, if you had to focus on one, I find this an incredibly hard question. Where would you focus, Phil? I'm going to start with you. Well, I think the the, the, the short answer is always it depends uh, on, on your organization and where you are. And you might have some of this covered and some of this might be absolutely new to you. Um, I think the one. I think the one that um, absolutely will. If I think they all affect everyone. I mean, that's why we chose them. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about our methodology for how we chose them as well, by the way, that's in that's in the blog post. Um, I think the acceleration employee activism for me is just a is is so fundamental that again culture continues to shift. The conversations happening out there, and and organisations being really deliberate about how they do that not whether they do that the the um you know conversations are going to happen whether organizations like it or not so it's not it's not how it's not if it's it's how you facilitate that with your people i think is 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 something more organizations should think about in a bit more of a pointed fashion i think they're all of course important i think from a short term perspective i always go to short term and actionable and i think the one for me that feels the most clear if I could walk away and do something with it immediately would be the formalization around flexible working. I think if you haven't got that already in your business, that is a must do very, very quickly. So I think I'm probably going to mm. gonna choose choose that one just from the pure urgency around it for organizations. Yeah, I, I nearly went for that for the same reason. Again, it's a that is an inescapable reality that, that you are, that f- flexible working is here in one capacity or another and and if you're not already deliberate about it then that's something that's something you need to do agree as i as i mentioned before there is a written version of this for people who prefer um who prefer to who prefer to read than listen but if you've if you've got this far in the podcast you've probably taken on a lot of the main points and uh and uh, and some additional ones as well that we didn't cover in the uh, in the article so uh suffice it to say if you agree with disagree with would like to discuss anything that Kerry and I have talked about today you can get in touch and reach us uh, at our email hello at leadersforgood.org and again there'll be a link to that in the show notes um, we uh, will be checking our we'll be checking ourselves against these trends in a year's time so you can expect a follow-up uh, post and podcast early in 2024 um, reflecting on on how we did in, in predicting the uptick of some of this stuff um, Kerry any parting words from you before we before we leave people no i just think we are one of our sort of founding principles is around humility and accepting that we definitely don't know everything and we fully accept that we've probably got some things wrong here and that's that's part of what's exciting i guess about predictions and why we're really keen to to focus and come back next year and think about about how we did and how our opinions have changed over the last 12 months because we change our mind all the time 
um, and that's and that's exciting for me. If you if you're not convinced that predictions are are uh, are uh, kind of a bit of a guess at best, go read Super Forecasting. Uh, I think it's by Nick Bostrom wrote that. But there's a the Super Forecasters is a is a great book on predictions and why you shouldn't believe a lot of people giving them, <laughs> including us. Well, thank you as always for listening to the Leaders for Good podcast. We will see you in the next episode. Thank you. If you found this episode useful, the best way to support us and spread the message is by telling a friend or a colleague. You can also give us a rating or a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Leaders for Good and how you can start making positive change, head on over to leadersforgood.org and join our free community. Music